Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, and Vilma V. In tonight's program, Nina Serrano speaks with Sheila Dorden, superintendent of Alameda County Schools, about her legacy. We'll also speak with the talented singer and songwriter Irene Diaz, who recently returned from the exciting South by Southwest Music Festival in Texas and will be coming to town for performances on May 8th and 9th. She'll be sharing her music with us that will hopefully inspire you to get your tickets before they sell out. Like always, we have a calendar of interesting events brought to you by our Sylvia Malali and other happenings coming up soon. But first, we begin with our weekly updates on Brazil and Noticias Sin Fronteras. Stay tuned. company in Brazil. Founded in the 50s by a nationalist president, Petrobras is a thermometer of economic and political life in Brazil. As the 2014 elections get closer, the oil company is once again involved in partisan conflict. Petrobras is one of the most important companies in Brazil. With the Brazilian government as its major stock owner, it is responsible for the production and exploration of petroleum and its refining and distribution of fuel. Since its founding, Petrobras has been mixed up with politics. It was created in 1953 by Getulio Vargas, a nationalist politician who was also the dictator of Brazil from 1930 to 1945. Its founding was a result of the 1946 The Oil is Ours campaign that advocated for the exploration of fossil fuels to be exclusively done by Brazilian companies. During the 70s, it was one of the drivers of the nationalist economic policies the military dictatorship imposed. Petrobras also had an important role in the oil crisis of the 70s when the government started to invest in ethanol made from sugarcane to replace gasoline. President Lula, like Vargas, used Petrobras as a symbol of the economic rebirth Brazil has gone through in the last decade. The discovery of massive deep-water oil reserves, called pre-salt, were seen as a sign that we would finally reach self-sufficiency in fossil fuels. But now things are not going quite as well. Not all of these fuels are easy to explore. The pre-salt is a very important find, but its productivity has not yet reached the peaks everyone was hoping for. One of the main pre-salt investors, Ike Batista, went bankrupt last year. And now, Petrobras directors are facing mismanagement and corruption charges. The Congress is about to create a Parliamentary Investigation Committee, a CPI. Petrobras's board is being investigated for paying more than $1 billion in total on an unprofitable oil refinery in Pasadena. In 2006, the company's board appreciated the purchase proposal and approved it. Part of the Pasadena refinery was bought from the Belgian company Astra Oil for $360 million. The Controladoria Geral da União is questioning the transaction since the same refinery had been bought by Astro Oil for $42 million in 2005. Another issue is the contract Petrobras signed. One of its items stated that if the owners disagreed on how to manage the facility, one of them would have to buy the other share immediately. The scenario ended up happening. Astra Oil and Petrobras had a disagreement and the Brazilian company had to pay an extra $820 million. Now Congress and the federal police want to know how the board could have approved such a damaging contract. President Dilma Rousseff, then a member of Lula's administration, was on the Petrobras board. Former members said the document they approved was missing the controversial clauses. The opposing parties, especially the PSDB, see this as a chance to stop President Dilma Rousseff from winning the October elections in the first round, as polls are suggesting. The PT accuses its adversaries of making politics at the cost of Petrobras's credibility and is trying to squeeze in the CPI the accusations of corruptions in the Sao Paulo metro, a state governed by the PSDB. As usually happens, this election year will be full of partisan confrontations and nothing and no one will be spared. Let's just hope these battles do not knock Petrobras out of its 20th place on Forbes' list of the world's biggest companies. 
Judging from its birth amongst political upheaval in the 50s, Petrobras will be as good as ever in 2015. For KPFA's La Raza Chronicles, this is Diogo Antonio Rodriguez from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders, covering news from America Latina for the week ending April 28th. The Wall Street Journal, in an article entitled Latin America is World's Most Violent Region, reports that the data released from a study on world homicides by the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crimes indicate that America Latina is actually the world's most violent region despite public perception that the Middle East or the African continent is more violent. As a whole, America Latina's per capita homicide rate is 23.4 per 100,000 people, which is nearly double the rate of Africa, which is just 12.5 per 100,000 people. The UN study counted 440,000 homicides around the world in 2012, using reports from law enforcement and the World Health Organization. The Wall Street Journal's analysis concluded that just four countries in America Latina, Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, and Colombia accounted for nearly 107,000 homicides in 2012, or one out of every four global killings. However, the article also pointed out that countries in the southern region of America Latina, Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay have crime rates roughly similar to the U.S. But the point remains that the Americas, as a continent, now tops Africa in terms of world homicide rates. Guatemala Former president of Guatemala, Alfonso Portillo, who held the office from 2000 to 2004, will be sentenced for one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering in U.S. federal court in just under two months. Mr. Portillo was extradited to the United States in May of last year in a move that caught many by surprise at the time. He pled guilty to a single count of conspiracy to commit money laundering on March 18th of this year. Mr. Portillo is the first Latin American president to be tried in U.S. courts after leaving office. The former president is scheduled to be sentenced for his crimes on June 23, 2014, in the Southern District Federal Court in Manhattan, New York. El Salvador. Church leaders in El Salvador are seeking to revive a truce between the country's powerful street gangs in order to combat a recent resurgence in violent crime. In 2012, Catholic Bishop Fabio Colindres helped broker a similar deal between gang leaders, and he is urging religious leaders to establish new talks with the various warring factions. According to El Salvador's medical authority, homicide rates have risen 44% in the first three months of 2014 compared to the number one year ago. The president-elect of El Salvador, former FMLN rebel leader Salvador Sanchez Seren, publicly declared that he would not negotiate with criminal street gangs. Mr. Sanchez Seren formally assumes the presidency of El Salvador in June of this year and was scheduled to meet with Pope Francis last week. Uruguay it has been called Uruguay's weed revolution by advocates and critics alike. Later this year, Uruguay will become the first country in the Latin American region to legalize, regulate, and actively participate in the production, sale, and taxation of marijuana. Here is the president of Uruguay, José Mujica, speaking about the new law. Sí, nuestro criterio es tratar de arrebatarle el mercado a un negocio clandestino y ponerlo... Eh, a la luz del día. Under the new legislation, not only are citizens and private businesses allowed to grow, buy, and sell cannabis, but the government itself will enter into the marijuana business, cultivating and harvesting the crop, distributing it, and then selling it from authorized outlets as well as taxing profits. President Mujica has instituted a number of leftist reforms since taking office back in 2010. A year ago, abortion was legalized for all women and same-sex marriages were recognized last fall. Citizens of Uruguay will choose a new president in the fall of 2014.
This has been a summary of some of the latest news from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, please email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. Were you separated from your child during the war in El Salvador between 1980 and 1992? The Probusqueda Association of Disappeared Children from El Salvador will help you. Text the word FIND to 99000. Text the word FIND to 99000. Or write to info at probusqueda.org.sv. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio today two women who have probably influenced your life a great deal if you either went to the public schools here in Alameda County in the last 20 years or so, or if your children did. Sheila Jordan, the superintendent of Alameda County Schools, and Louise Music, the director of Integrated Learning. Welcome. Sheila and Louise. Thank you, Nina. It's very exciting to be here with you. Good to be here, Nina. Thank you. Well, we're really glad to have you because this is probably the most important subject that we can be talking about if we're thinking about the future, which is our schools. So, Sheila, I'd like to ask you, how did you emerge from an active parent and a participating working teacher in the schools to becoming the Alameda County Superintendent of Schools? I can start by saying this. It never occurred to me that one day I would be superintendent of schools. And when I speak to the kids today, I always say, I always say that, I'm not your typical superintendent. I didn't get here the usual way. The way I started was as a preschool teacher in Lockwood Children's Center in East Oakland. As a result of that experience, which I loved, and I was there really in the beginning of the Black Power movement, and most of the students were African American. And it was a very exciting time because the kids were constantly calling each other names, those names that we're very familiar with, denigrating names, and then saying, no, no, black is beautiful, black is beautiful. And as somebody coming out of the civil rights movement, it was wonderful to see these young children emerging. When I saw, however, what happened to our kids as they entered the mainstream schools, I was motivated to go back and get my master's in special education so that I too could become an expert uh, rather than just relying on my supervisors to tell me that I was not an expert in what I was doing. So from there, I went on to work in Mount Diablo a school system and became an active union member as part of the teachers union. In 1974, I had my first child. And as he grew up, it was very exciting to me to now be a parent as well as a teacher, not only for the joy of being a parent, but also for the political advantage I felt I had, because it always seemed to me that parents had more potential power than teachers did. Of course, I've learned the hard way that that's not really true either. Uh, none of us really have all that much power unless we work collectively, which was something I was always committed to. So I went on there to work in Oakland. My oldest child went all through Oakland schools, started out in preschool in Oakland, and then went on to uh, Peralta Elementary School, uh, Claremont Middle School, and Oakland Tech. During that time, there were two teacher strikes, and I became very active in support of the teachers as a teacher parent. And ultimately, in dealing with Oakland public schools, there was a strong sense among the active parents in North Oakland and really throughout the city that we needed to have a change, that something was desperately wrong with Oakland public schools in the way it was serving all kids. And we wanted somebody there who would be responsive to parents and teachers who were trying so desperately to do the best they could for their, for their students. I emerged as a candidate to run for school board. I did with a big united front. I mean, it, I think it was the 
the first time that we had people from all aspects of the left, as well as community people, coming together to say, yes, we're going to support Sheila because Sheila's going to be responsible back to us, and we want to see a change. So that was really the beginning of my time in pulling together all of the various organizing pieces. So that was middle of the 70s into the end of the 80s. We learned an awful lot and we formed friendships that we still have to this day. And we were very proud. North Oakland was very proud of not only allowing me as a representative of North Oakland, but encouraging me to be everywhere in the city, to bring in folks from East Oakland, to work across people's interests, that is, within education, so special education, English as a second language, open classrooms, you name it, lots of great discussions. And not only that, but I had a regular advisory committee. So that kind of organizing had a profound impact on my ability to feel like I was really speaking for a group of people. And, and they were there in support of me. Eventually, I stepped down from the school board because folks wanted me to run for city council, to run against the sitting incumbent who they really felt needed an opponent, and she needed an opponent who could win. And because of my profile as a hardworking school board member, they felt I could do it, even though I knew very little about city politics. Ultimately, I was elected, and really the kinds of public policy issues that I learned about as a city council member broadened my ability to understand public policy policy, municipal politics, and really state and national politics in a way that I never had as just a community activist or only as a community activist, not a just. And eventually I decided that city council was not really what I wanted to be, where I wanted to be. I was a strong advocate for schools, but I wanted to return to the schools. I hated some of the battles over, particularly the battles over contracts and who got them. I just felt like that's not how I wanted to spend my time. So I went back to education and took a job in the county office of education. While I was there, I would go home and complain that, you know, that people were not really doing much in the schools and that really all I ever heard about was people going on conferences. And I thought, this this is not what I want to do. I would go home and complain about it. And my husband would say, you don't have to deal with that, Sheila. You could run and change change things. I was also very disappointed in what was happening for our students who were incarcerated incarcerated and in special schools and I felt there was no special education there was there was not a lot of support for the teachers actually Louise who worked with me a great deal in the city council on environmental issues was working on a garden project and that dialogue with Louise really confirmed my feelings that the students were not number one and that we really could make changes and one thing led to another and I ran and did win for the superintendent of schools yes and that's one reason why it me being superintendent is not a typical pathway because it is an elected position and most superintendents are appointed by a board and report to a board. I am elected by the people and have a lot more latitude to really work on issues that I feel are critical for our schools. So you've taken us from your life as a teacher and then a city council member and then a school board member working at the county office of education and now you've become the superintendent of schools because really it sounds like you were inside and you saw what wasn't happening and you knew what you wanted to happen and it was only as superintendent of schools that maybe you could begin to make it happen. And you mentioned Louise Music, that she was there in those early years influencing you, supporting you, and working with you, and together you were developing ideas. So then then what happens when you actually get the power? Because some of us, we voted for Obama because we thought, oh, he'd have the power and bring hope back. He claims he can't do much because he doesn't have the power. What were you able to do? I've been a lot luckier in many ways in my much smaller pond than Barack Obama in his very large pond, just as an aside. One reason I did support him was because he was such an exciting figure for students, all students. If you walked into a kindergarten class or a 12th 
grade senior class, and almost anywhere from urban to suburban. And you mentioned his name and the fact that he was running. The students would just spontaneously clap. They were so excited about having this young man, this young black man, represent. So he went in with very, very high expectations, number one, and then trying to live up to them or being influenced by business folk. I think a key piece is that I've always tried to stay grounded in the rank and file. I've always tried to stay close to labor, to the issues of working people, and to to teachers in particular. So I have a very strong belief system, and my own career was guided by the Bay Area Writing Project, where I credit learning the skills of how to empower those of us on the ground in education. And that's primarily teachers, and to a certain extent principals, but school site. Deborah Meyer is a big advocate of looking at our own folks, people who are right there, and helping train them to be the experts. So we're not always having to fly in major experts from elsewhere. So we've, we've tried to do that at the county office, and I've tried to do that in my life in general, because power can be even, you know, very small amounts of power, which, relatively speaking, we're just speaking about here, can be very corrupting. So it is really important that we work together, that we share our ideas, and that we continue to empower, to use kind of an old-fashioned word, those folks who are closest to the students. So... Yes, Louise. Well, I, you know, I think listening to Sheila, it makes me think about that idea of thinking globally and acting locally. And I was lucky enough when Sheila was on the city council to do some work for her in both thinking about sustainable cities and community gardens, but also cultural affairs. And when Sheila became the superintendent, I was compelled to take the opportunity to join her there, even though at that time I was very happy as a teacher at the art school in Oakland. But I was inspired by Sheila's vision and passion and intention around how artists and parents and teachers could all be working together for these collective ideas of what's good for our kids and thinking of education not just as a way for children to learn skills and knowledge, but to apply them towards really important things like how we make a healthy environment, how kids learn to take care of the nutritional needs of themselves and their communities. So this idea of a superintendent who had a really big vision about what was good for kids now today in schools, now in their communities, but also for their future career pathways. You know, it was very hard to put aside an opportunity like that because it was a time in public education where not everyone was taking that kind of big picture approach. And there was a big focus on test scores and sort of a more narrow curriculum, and that was never Sheila's vision. Well, when Sheila became the superintendent of schools, how did you, Sheila, begin to implement this vision? And could you address for our listeners the concept of bilingual education and the problems of the immigrant children in the schools and racism in the schools? This issue, it's amazing how the issue of racism and different kinds of education standards for different children has certainly perpetuated over the years. And we speak a lot more about it, but we first started, when I first started, it was always sort of a main part of our talking points. And the issue was equity, of learning to feel what the difference was and help worlds understand that we're not just talking about equal education, we're talking about equitable education. So for those folks who don't have the same early start and the same advantages that many of our students, more affluent students have, that we need to do special things for them. And one way we began was by building on the relationship I had built with artists in the community. So I had been working with this uh, whole series of artists as a council member, particularly when I was working on the Oakland Youth Policy Initiative, to think, think differently about how we relate to young people and how young people can relay their message in positive ways. So when you speak particularly to young African-American kids, and of course to, to Latino students as well, they say, you only see us in a bad light. 
in the media, in, on television? When do you see us? When we're being arrested, when we're being put in cop cars, when we are doing something bad. We, we want to show who we really are and what our potential is. So we began with the arts, and we had the incredibly enriched environment of all of these artists and a very deprived school system in terms of being able to bring arts into schools. And arts is so much more than giving a student a piece of paper and some crayons or paints and saying, here, go at it. Show us your creativity. And that's certainly part of it. But we wanted kids to have the arts in terms of music and theater. And we did a lot with performance art instead of just having meetings. So that was the beginning of sort of taking the arts, bringing it into the schools, and making it an equity issue. Because more affluent students have access to museums and more venues that they're exposed to the arts. Whereas so many of our children did not. And also, as we know, art is a great way to convey your own culture and start being proud of who you are. So even today, now we're working with the indigenous peoples in this area, working with their students who are historically and traditionally low performers. And they are very connected too to second language learners and to Latinos because they have so much of a cultural similarity in their background. So we've we've come a long way. Louise and I started that together. <laughs> she said she took the opportunity when I had made a commitment to bringing arts into the, back into the school and because I knew how talented Louise was, I always like to say, I made this commitment, and then the smartest thing I did was hire Louise Music. Well, Louise, you always say art is education, and you've been saying it for a long time. And your background also included a lot of organizing with the farm workers. And I wonder if you could talk about how you incorporated some of those Saul Alinsky farm workers union organizing techniques and this concept that art is education. I think that there are some really strong and important connections there that really go to both for Sheila and myself, the way that we've been able to work effectively in public education, because it's been about, yes, making sure that our teachers are competent and prepared, that we have strong content, but really considering the needs of people and the involvement of people all along the way. One of the things that we were able to do early on in the work around 2000 was to make a partnership with researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education who were doing research into why the arts actually matter in learning and in children's development and in strong classrooms. And we were able to pilot some of the really wonderful tools that they developed that helped teachers to understand that the arts are not just opportunities for kids to perform or to make pieces of art, but they're important places for kids to express themselves, to take risks, to engage deeply with content, to persist through problems. And as Sheila was saying, the arts themselves are cultural strategies and cultural products. And so in terms of the organizing, another thing that happened early at that time is that we were able to partner with parents in Oakland Oakland, who were organizing around ending large, overburdened schools that were not able to serve their students well. And so a small group of the first small schools were established, and we were able to partner with them to demonstrate the role of arts in student and teacher and community learning. And then based on what happened in those schools, like Ascend, which is in the Fruitvale, which is a, a model, we were able to show what they were doing there through Art is Education, which was a month-long annual showcase where we would help people show, this is what kids are learning in the arts, this is why it matters, this is why we need to spread it. And then again, you know, thinking about the those organizing concepts, Sheila and I were really able to work effectively together because Sheila paved the way. She talked with business. She was able to get Wells Fargo to support our work. She reached out to foundations. We had early support from the Ford Foundation. And all of those pieces came together in very powerful ways. So you see, it was not, it was all stakeholders, parents, teachers, superintendents, funders. And the one thing that I just want to say is that Sheila, by working together in that way and bringing all stakeholders together, we were able to demonstrate the really powerful position of the County Office of Education because that kind of organizing work is not possible really most of the time for people in schools or districts where they have so many stresses and pressures happening, coming at them all the time, so much changeover in staff. With Sheila's long-term commitment to leadership and 
using that position of the county office, we were able to provide an ongoing message through all kinds of turnover that art is education, helping schools to continue to grow programs that they felt were important for their young people. Thank you, Louise. I just wanted to add one piece on the art is education because like writing, art is like a thread that you weave through an entire curriculum. So if you listen to scientists and you bring scientists into your world, they will tell you they think artistically. They need the arts to help them understand science. Math uses various artistic ways. It opens the door to real problem solving and a sense that there's a creative aspect to education, which many students never had an opportunity to really think about, and teachers. So as this rolled out, as we work with Harvard and we work with Ford Foundation, and now we're working with Stanford, more and more an understanding that art is education. It's becoming a much more universal concept. So this certainly must have impacted English learning students to be able to enter into these studies through the arts. Yes, and also to develop pride. I mean, one of the issues that Spanish-speaking children and also their parents face is where people want to identify them as being stupid because they don't speak the language well. One of the messages that they're able to relay and that we're able to relay to them is how valuable they are as mentors to our English-only speakers. And that is part of what the whole move toward immersion is about, where where English-only students are learning Spanish, and Spanish-only students can learn English, and they do it together, and actually being bilingual or trilingual is a whole lot better than monolingual. So, Sheila, it seems like in your term, your long term, and this is the almost the end of your terms as superintendent of Alameda County Schools, you introduced a new culture into the Office of Education, that it became an organizing body that brought together so many parts of the community to make changes in the schools. But now you're coming to the end of that. What do you think your legacy is? And maybe, Louise, you could add, how can this continue? And along the way, maybe you'll touch on this new common core that many parents and students have heard about but aren't sure just what it is. Well, I've been working on transition for the last few years. I've known this is the end of my fourth term, and the years have gone by so swiftly, but it really has been quite an honor and a privilege to be able to stay in one spot as a leader and be able to develop the kind of vision that we're speaking about. It's not easy, actually, because it's a multifaceted organization, so we also work with mandated services. We are the intermediary between the state and the districts, so we don't get to just do everything that we we want, and nor does everybody necessarily always agree with what we're trying to do. But nonetheless, as the superintendent, I did and do have a lot of leeway to try and promote this kind of progressive vision of how we take and integrate across curriculum. And that's why it was such a pleasure to create a department that we can call integrated learning and ask Louise to lead that. So that's been an exciting piece. So we've really been working on how to build a secondary leadership, which has been very important to me because you see everywhere where where a leader steps away and then things start to crumble. And I was determined that that not be my legacy, that my legacy was tied to a strong group of talented individuals who would now be able to take us into the next step, not just do what I'm doing, but really be thinking about how to use what we've done these last number of years as a building block to move on. Uh, When I met Karen Monroe, who I subsequently have appointed to be associate superintendent, I felt that she could really move the vision forward. She's younger. She's about the same uh, age I was when I started. You can't really be too young because you have to have enough experience so that people will respect you as a leader. She comes out of Oakland. She's an African-American, Oakland and Berkeley. She's African-American woman who has got three generations of education and a lot of training. And she's just a, a really good person. When I met her, I thought... This is somebody who could replace me. So we're hoping that that will happen. She's already providing a leadership role. And we have just this great group of folks that we've been able to recruit in the last number of years as we have tried to put together this very strong secondary leadership 
great business manager. So I'm very optimistic that we will see that we will see positive changes and I'll be able to move on to working on the issues that these days to me seem so important and that is it's a whole other topic but it's the whole issue of the overwhelming numbers of African American particularly men in our, our so-called juvenile justice system and how we can rethink what we're doing with with that population. So that's my hope that using my connections in the legislature, we can start really taking a look at policies and training of the police and others to make some positive changes there. This is a really nostalgic time for me because, you know, it's sad for me to see Sheila, to have this era kind of come to a close. But I know that her commitment to decriminalizing our youth and taking this experience and even advancing more important policies for our young people, I'm excited about that and looking forward to continue to work with her. I also feel that at the Alameda County Office of Education and in our region that we're in a strong place because she hasn't just been a leader on her own. She's been knitting communities together that are stronger and tighter now and that have a shared vision and are ready to really make a collective impact. These new Common Core standards that you were referring to, we're ready to work with teacher leaders and parents and students to implement those in important ways because of the work that we've been doing through arts integration. We have, through our partnerships with researchers, we've been able to talk about what is core in the arts and help teachers take what kids are learning in the arts and apply it to learning across the curriculum. That's what the authors of the Common Core Standards have also done. They said, well, there are too many millions of little standards that are about rote memorization. We need to think about what's core that mathematicians do, what's core that writers, and what's core in literature. And so we already have many demonstration schools who know how to take those deeper ideas and involve children actively as readers, writers, and mathematicians in integrating and applying that learning across the curriculum. So because of Sheila's values-based approach, where she's not only done and led for what we were sort of mandated to do, she's also made sure that we have been working on what she and all of us believe is important to do. And so now that the policies are changing, now that educators are saying, we need to prepare our kids for the future, they need to be able to communicate, collaborate, think creatively, think critically. Those are the competencies that all education is turning towards. And here in Alameda County, we're really in a great position to model it and implement it. So while it's sad for me that We're looking at her last year here at the county office. I'm excited about the new leadership. Karen Moreau is a fantastic person to work for. And we have a a strong group of uh, leaders at the Alameda County Office of Education, strong relationships with other counties in our region, and strong relationships with parents and community members. So there will be an opportunity. It's mandated that parents be involved and become knowledgeable. I think it's very, very important that parents understand not only what the curriculum is about, but also take a look at some of the issues that we all have some concerns about, and that is what's happening as we test those skills and the understanding of our students. And one of the biggest challenges is going to be, will everybody have a similar access to the computers because it's all computerized, which is new. It's not fill in the blanks, which is wonderful. It is much more of an emphasis on problem solving. But if young people don't have the experience of feeling comfortable on the computers put in front of them, if they don't have internet access at home, or if there aren't enough computers in their schools, then we're not talking about a level playing field at all. So those are the issues around equity that are going to be very important. And certainly for our Latino students, we want to make sure that parents are involved, that they feel comfortable, that their kids will be treated and have the access that they need. So, you know, we heard the president. Actually, the president is now talking to some of the big corporate folks who actually control so much of our internet and computers about making sure that there is greater access. He has an interest in in this as well. 
you know, we have to play a role in that also. That is all of us who uh, have a voice and <laughs> we want more people to have a voice. We want the parents to really speak up, to ask the right questions. So not only what is my child learning, which is very, very key and important, and Louise spoke beautifully to that, but also what is that testing going to look like and what will it mean for my child? And is my child ready? Does my child have the experience of being able to do well? Well, thank you both. This has been a very interesting topic and one that we're going to have to revisit because it's always with us. So thank you very much. Sheila Jordan, Superintendent of Alameda County Schools, and Louise Music, Director of Integrated Learning. Thanks for the invitation, Nina. It's really nice to talk with you. Welcome back to Cronicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I'm excited to have on the phone with me the talented singer and songwriter Irene Diaz. She'll be performing at the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco and Studio Grand in Oakland on May 8th and 9th. She's been taking the alternative music scene by storm with her soulful singing, and we're lucky to have her with us this evening over the phone. Welcome, Irene Diaz, to the show. Hello, that was so sweet. I like your intro. So we've been hearing a great deal about you. You've started off playing in L.A. in coffee shops and smaller venues, but you've really catapulted yourself to playing in pretty important music venues and events. You've played at the Hollywood House of Blues. You've taken part in the Latin American Music Conference in New York. And you just came back from the exciting music festival South by Southwest in Texas, which must have been quite an experience. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of how you began to write music? Well, I've been writing since I was a teenager, and over the years it's been developing. I really started making an, you know, a serious effort to do music when I was 23, and ever since then it's just kind of been you know, growing. It's a lot of work, but it's, it's a great process. And so your music has been described as deeply soulful with an incredible voice that has captured the attention of many. Patrick O. Heffernan for Vents Magazine says that you bring back classical American soul and blues and elevate it to a whole new level for today's audiences, which is pretty impressive. But how would you describe your own music and the influences behind it? I think it is very soulful. When a song comes out and I don't have to think about it a lot, and then it's a good song. I have Tricky Game, like took me a year to write. I think being considered soulful is something that I've wanted when I was younger, I used to say, oh, I want to, you know, a deep woman's voice. I want to sing that way. I, I never really considered myself a singer when I was songwriting when I was a teenager because I was playing around. And I think over the years, it's developed listening to artists like Nina Simone, even singer-songwriter uh, Thea. Just everything around me has inspired me. And I don't like to categorize myself into a genre. And I just write whatever I feel. Well, let's take a listen to one of your songs so our listeners can get a taste of what they'll hear at the upcoming shows at the Red Poppy Art House and Studio Grand. This song is called Crazy Love off of Irene Diaz's album, I Love You Madly. No, I'll never get in 
the days are so good And the nights are so sweet Baby, you put me in the mood You sweep me off my feet But there's days when you're sad the song Crazy Love by Irene Diaz. She'll be performing at the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco on May 8th, and she'll be performing at Studio Grand in Oakland on May 9th. She joins us now over the phone from LA. So Irene, tell our listeners a little bit about that song. Crazy Love, I think it was inspired by um, my partner, Carolyn, and it's just a very emotional song. We actually co-wrote it together. It's funny because she, she started she plays ukulele on it and she's drumming and I was like, yeah, I don't know what that is. And then she started playing like the rhythm that you hear in the song. And so it just kind of started developing into this beautiful love song. I think it's a great love song, just capturing the essence of what love really is. You just talked a little bit about the process of writing that song. What's your general process for creating the music that you create? I always have my phone, which has like a voice recorder um, I'm always going around, you know, if I have an idea, I get it down as soon as possible because, you know, you get things and you forget them. I don't know, ideas come when I'm listening to other artists, experiencing life, seeing others experience life. Songs can come out through anything, anything that I experience. I mean, I'm actually working on a song right now that has to do with hate and how much I dislike it. And it came about because of somebody saying something ridiculous on a social media site. You know, you get fuel from everywhere. A lot of your songs are in English. Do you have anything in store coming up in Spanish? I grew up from Mexican-American. I got a simulator. <laughs> what is that called? A simulation had a process over me. And I'm not fluent in Spanish. I love Spanish, but I, I feel more comfortable writing in English. I think music can transcend languages. You know, I, I'm really about chords and melodies and, you know, whatever I feel comfortable singing. So if I sing a song in Spanish, it means I'm probably comfortable singing whatever it is I'm writing, you know. And you, like many other artists, have chosen to take the independent fundraising route. And I know that you did a Kickstarter campaign to produce your first EP and album, I Love You Madly. Why did you choose to do that? Um, I chose to do that because I was looking at the cost of printing CDs, and it's really expensive distributing and getting everything ready. You know, obviously, I don't have a lot of money because I'm just starting, and this is my first EP. So it was really great to get fans involved. We raised funds in about two weeks. And it really showed how much people are really enjoying the music. So I think that's why I went with Kickstarter. And Kickstarter, you, you have to make your goal within a certain time frame. And if you don't, then you don't get that money. And so it was kind of a challenge. It was a lot of work, but I mean, it really paid off. 
Well, that sounds amazing. We're really glad that it worked out for you and that we get this wonderful EP and first album. Yeah, thank you. Well, let's remind our listeners when and where you'll be performing. You'll be at the Red Poppy Art House in San Francisco on Thursday, May 8th. You'll be playing two shows that evening, but the first show is already sold out. So there is a second show at 8.40 that listeners can get tickets to only at the door. So they're encouraged to arrive early. You'll also be playing on Friday, May 9th at the Studio Grand in Oakland at 9 p.m. But for tickets to that show, listeners can message La Bohemia Productions via Facebook. I'm really excited because I hear that the venues are very intimate and I think it's a perfect setting. So Irene, if folks want to get in touch with you or find out more about your music, where can they go to? They can go to my website at irenediazmusic.com. Well, thank you, Irene Diaz, for speaking with us this evening. We're looking forward to your performances and hope that our listeners will get a chance to see what no doubt will be an amazing couple of shows. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, let's go out with another one of your songs. This one is called Tricky Game off of the album I Love You Madly by Irene Diaz. y bienvenidos al calendario de las crónicas de la raza. Yo soy Silvia Malali Aguirre. This Sunday, May 4th, at La Peña Cultural Center from 1 to 3 p.m., there will be two presentations on the latest events affecting the Los Angeles truckers. The Los Angeles truckers recently shut down the largest port in the country. Ernesto Nevares will speak about his 25 years of experience organizing truckers. That's this Sunday, May 4th, from 1 to 3 p.m. at La Peña Cultural Center, located at 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Para más información, please go to www.lapena.org. Brava for Women in the Arts and Raza Nova Theater present the West Coast premiere of Waxing West by Romanian playwright Saviana Stanescu. The play runs from May 1st through May 18th with shows running from Thursday through Saturdays at 8 p.m. and on Sundays at 3 p.m. Almost 20 25 years since the execution of Romanian dictators Nicolae and Elena Ceausescu, Saviana Stanescu's Waxing West tells the story of Romanian mail-order bride Daniela, who arrives in New York to marry a businessman. Haunting the play, the late dictators appear in Daniela's nightmares as insatiable vampires and offer surreal commentary on her journey towards the American dream. That's the West Coast premiere of Waxing West at Brava Theater, 2780.
8124 24th Street at York in San Francisco. Para más información, please go to www.brava.org. On Tuesday, May 6th at 7 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland, filmmaker Denise Smekol will screen her films Children of the Amazon and Trading Bows and Arrows for Laptops in a benefit screening for the Berkeley Film Foundation. That's a benefit screening of the films Children of the Amazon and Trading Bows and Arrows for Laptops on Tuesday, May 6th at 7 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland. For more information about the films, go to www.childrenoftheamazon.com. Enrollment is now open for Los Ensontles Mexican Arts Center Summer Camp 2014. The camp runs from June 16th through June 27th. Students ages 5 through 15 will learn Mexican-inspired instrumental vocal dance and arts and crafts skills in a fun group environment and under the instruction of master artists. At the end of the session, students will present their art projects and participate in a performance, which will be free and open to the public. Para más información, more information, or to enroll in the camp, please call Fabiola at 510-233-8015. And for this week's La Raza Chronicles calendar, yo soy Silvia Malali Aguirre. Ha sido un placer. Que pasen buenas noches y nos vemos pronto. Gracias. Ciao. Saturday, May 10th, from 1 to 4.30 p.m., the City of Berkeley awards KPFA's own Avacha, a Lifetime Achievement Award for Poetry. Garesen, the Central American Resource Center that provides critical services to the Latino immigrant and other poor and marginalized communities, will be holding its annual Romero Vive fundraising at the Terra Gallery in San Francisco. That's Wednesday, May 14th at 6 p.m. Refreshments will be served. Come and celebrate with Garesen in honoring Mujeres Unidas y Activas and Supervisor John Avilos for their deep commitment. That's Wednesday, May 14th at 6 p.m. Terra Gallery in San Francisco. For more information, go to www.garesensf.org. GMOs 2.0, Synthetic Biology, Farmers and Food. Synthetic biology is extreme genetic engineering, and it's about to radically change our food system. What is SynBio, and how might it impact agriculture, the environment, and the livelihoods of farmers around the world? You can learn more about this on Wednesday, April 30th at 7.30 at the Brower Center in Berkeley. Here speakers, Neth Daño of the Philippines, Alejandrino Garcia Castaño of Mexico, John Rulak of Richmond, California, Dana Pearls of Berkeley, California. It's open to the public and everyone is welcome. That's on Wednesday, April 30th at 7.30 p.m. at the Brower Center, 2150 Alston Way. Go to www.kpfa.org for more information. We are the proud sponsors. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. To stay updated about news, public affairs, arts, and culture in the Latino community, make sure to like us on Facebook at La Raza Chronicles. To hear this program again or share it with friends, go to www.kpfa.org. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.